Well, good morning. And um, have you ever read a book that has two stories running in parallel with each alternating chapter seemingly telling different unrelated stories? For example, there's Frankenstein by Mary Shelley or Dracula by Abraham Bram Stoker or The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Hyde or even the Brigitte Jones's diary for those uh, more recent readers. Well, here in our passage today, we have this. We have this amazing, touching story of a dad whose daughter dies. And in the middle of Jairus' story, we are told about the debilitating bleeding of a woman for 12 years. The subject swaps back and forth. We have Jairus, and then the woman, and then back to Jairus. Why are these events so tied together? Well, there must be a reason. So as we look at each part of the passage, let's make sure that we think why these events happened in this sandwiched way. Why did God ordain these events to be so nested together? It would be good if you had your Bibles open. Uh, The passage can be found on page 1038 as we start looking at this detail in this passage. Okay, so Jesus had returned from the other side of the lake, and here he was met by a crowd who were waiting for him. And in that crowd was one of the most senior civic and religious leaders in town, who is about to do an amazing thing. Jairus, as the synagogue leader, was that respected pillar of society. The outrageous thing that he did was to fall at this traveler's preacher's feet pleading with Jesus to come to his house as his 12-year-old daughter was close to death. This would have been so socially wrong for him to do this, but you can sense that he just didn't care. Look at the strength of the word, pleading. Picture the scene, Jairus falling at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come and save his daughter. Now, Beth, my daughter, is about to leave for university. Some of you may have um, experienced with me the joys of results day this week of A-levels. And Claire and I are so proud of her. But like Rob before her, we'll both miss her dearly when she goes. Uh, But this is how it should be. Children should leave home and start to live more independently. Jairus' daughter was 12, with her whole life ahead of her. Now, one thing that is not natural is for a child to die before a parent does, whatever the child's age. I can't imagine the trauma that Jairus and his wife must have been going through. They both knew that Jesus was their precious daughter's last hope. This completely obliterated that barrier of respectability that would normally have been there for a man of Jairus' status. Maintaining respectability was worth nothing compared to this chance to have Jesus heal her. People would have been stunned to see Jairus fall to Jesus' feet, distraught. Church, let me ask you a question. How important is our respectability to us? Is it so important that we paint a veneer of respectability in our lives? We not only try to hide our real selves from others, but also from, also from God and ourselves. How often do we let respectability be a barrier between ourselves and God? 
stopping us coming and falling at his feet? How often do we truly open ourselves up in prayer? Prayers are like praying like David did in the Psalms. Prayers that take guts or prayers that take honesty. Isn't it ridiculous not to be honest with God? Maybe in our heads we understand that we can hide nothing from him because he knows everything about us but still loves us. But do we really behave like he does? Why do we pray so dishonestly? Consider these words of Psalm 139 that David wrote. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. And yet, how much do we talk to God like he doesn't know the true emotions we have around the sin that we commit? Maybe the pride we feel, the anger we revel in, the allowance, in fact, the enjoyment of worldliness in our lives, the way we judge others and then justify that we're right in doing so, and countless other selfish emotions that only raise a barrier between us and our wonderful, all-knowing, all-loving Father. Yes, we get it in our heads that God knows everything, but do we talk to him in an honest way, all pretense stripped away, acknowledging in our hearts, as well as our heads, that with him there are no secrets? Can I challenge you further? Maybe you find it easier to ask for help from God compared to asking for help from other people. God's answer to prayer comes so often through others. But isn't it so hard to ask for help? Why is it that we're so willing to help others? And that's a wonderful thing. And yet we find it so hard to ask for help ourselves or to accept it when somebody offers it. How often do you find yourself saying, no, don't worry, I'm fine, but then later wishing we'd had, uh, we had let that person help us? In the same way we love to offer help to other people, uh, we should be just as willing to accept it. It is in the humbling moment that God is glorified and all are shown love and are helped. Jairus has asked, indeed pleaded for help, and Jesus starts on his way to his house. Okay, so on the way, the crowd starts to grow and presses in on Jesus. And there in the crowd, a crowd so big it nearly crushes Jesus, is our second character, who's at the end of her tether. She's been bleeding for 12 years. Look with me at verse 43. You can almost hear the frustration in Luke, who was a doctor, as he wrote this, but no one could heal her. What are we to make of this woman? What do we know of her? Well, the first thing is this sort of condition would have been considered unclean in Jewish faith. There's legislation covering both men and women discharging blood was clearly stated in Leviticus 15. There were strict details so that the unclean person would not make anyone else unclean. This meant that the person wouldn't be able to come into close proximity to anyone. Now, normally these conditions only lasted for a short while. 
But for the woman in our passage, she'd had this condition for 12 years. If she was married before this condition started, she wouldn't be able to come close to, hus- close to her husband at all, or her children, if she'd had any. And she certainly would not have had any more children after this was diagnosed, because she could not come close to her husband. This woman wouldn't have touched anyone or been touched for the last 12 years. She wouldn't have cuddled and wouldn't have held anybody's hand. She had the stigma of being labelled unclean by everyone, and everyone knew this. She would have been banned from anywhere where there were groups of people. This would have included meeting in the synagogue. She wouldn't have even been allowed in the house of prayer for 12 years. It's hard to imagine how ostracized, how lonely she must have felt on the very edge of society. Maybe this is how some in our society society feels today. For example, how do you think it feels to be told today that you have AIDS or HIV? How are people with AIDS made to be made to feel by society in general? Or in particular, how do you think we as Christians make those people who are suffering with AIDS feel? Do we welcome into our community people like this? Or do we inadvertently make people feel shameful amongst us? Certainly the woman in our passage would have felt shame over this. Imagine how people would have looked at her. So she generally avoided being seen at all. And yet here, on one of the days where there was the biggest crowd ever in Galilee, she breaks down this barrier of shame to see Jesus. She would have hated and feared crowds, and yet now this meant nothing compared to the hope that she placed in Jesus. So she thinks to herself, if only I could get near him, even to touch the hem of his garment, then I could be cured. She pushes through the crowd. Most likely those who knew her would have just stepped aside. Better that than, than better that than being touched by her. She gets to Jesus' back, reaches out, and touches the edge of his cloak. Instantly, she knows she's healed. She feels like she hasn't felt for so, so long and wants to just slip away. Jesus stops in his track. Jesus asks, who touched me? All those in the crowd denied it. Peter, in his usual helpful way, offers his help. Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. The woman then tells Jesus everything. I wonder at this point whether Jairus knew her. There's every chance he did. Maybe he was even involved as the synagogue leader in the placing of the restrictions on her. So why did Jesus ask, who touched me? This would mean that she had to declare it was her. It could almost seem mean to force her to be public about her condition. Well, actually, Jesus was accelerating her reacceptance into the community. Her condition was known by everyone. Now Jesus was giving her the opportunity to be declared publicly clean. The way Jesus handled this situation was exactly what she needed. She had been publicly unclean for 12 years. Now Jesus publicly declared her clean and the acceptance back into society had started. Then he said to her beautifully, 
daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now, Jesus had healed many without any contact. For example, the centurion's daughter in the previous chapter of Luke's Gospel. Jesus does not need to be touched to heal, but there is something rather beautiful about her healing through touch. This woman who couldn't be touched is healed by her touching the Son of God. You could imagine her joy. Meanwhile, Jairus is watching this scene, and someone comes up to him from his house saying, your daughter's dead, don't bother the teacher anymore. You can imagine the grief as it hits him like a ton of bricks. It's too late, it's over, she's gone. Maybe if we hadn't been delayed by this woman, we would have got there on time. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. Now the word here for belief in Greek is the same as the word that Jesus uses to say to the woman, daughter, your faith has healed you. Pistis. Each use of this word would have been ringing in Jairus' eyes, ears. Jesus' words in in verse 50, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. To Jairus, this wasn't an empty promise. Look what he had just seen Jesus do for this woman. Jesus is a man with authority over disease. We have just seen that. And now he is about to show his authority over death itself. They enter enter the house. This time, this healing will be much more private. Just Jesus, Peter, John, James, Jairus and his wife. The extended family and professional mourners are outside wailing. Jesus tells them, stop wailing, Jesus says. She's not dead, but asleep. They laugh at him, knowing that she was dead. They laugh. For them, people don't come back to life. This doesn't happen. What normally happens is people die and they stay dead. But Jesus being there makes makes this not a normal situation. He takes the girl's hand and says, my child, get up. At once she stands up and is completely better. Jairus and his wife have the love of their life back. I am sure Jesus also changed their life forever at that point. So what are we to make of this double story? Well, firstly, for both of them, there's a transformation of faith. They both would have started with a belief in God, But now, through the encounter with Jesus, they have been transformed to real faith in him. Jesus restores life for both of them. They move from respectable faith to raw faith. And this is what Jesus wants, what he wants for you, for you to explicitly and deliberately trust him in everything. Letting go of all our our barriers and letting him into all of our lives, every part. Secondly, there's an inversion of status in this sandwich story. The woman gets healed first. We might think that Jesus should have asked the woman to wait. Surely Jairus' need was more urgent than hers. Jesus reverses the order. The woman before the man, the unclean before the clean. We hardly notice this because this is the way Jesus always behaves throughout all the records in the Gospels. Jesus is the friend of sinners. 
Not because there's no, no gospel for the rich. There certainly is. Remember the, the story of Zacharias. The woman comes with nothing to Jesus. She simply knows she needs him. By seeing the woman's faith and Jesus' love for her, Jairus is too brought to real faith in Jesus. Thirdly, we see an amazing demonstration of the power of Jesus. Jesus has power over sickness and even death, but also over their side effects. In Jewish society, the clean were made unclean by contact, uh, by contact with the unclean. Jesus meets the woman and Jairus where they are, and he makes them clean. So who is this man, Jesus? We have in our sermon series over the last few weeks heard of him having such power and demonstrating such authority. Firstly, over nature, calming the storm. Then last week, over evil, bringing peace to a demon-possessed man. And then this week, over sickness, healing this woman. And over death itself, bringing back from death Jairus' beloved daughter. And this is Luke's purpose in telling us so meticulously of all Jesus did that we may be certain of all that we have been taught about him. And once we understand more of who he is, how can we not respond but with real faith, recognizing that we really need this real Jesus? Real belief is belief that comes to Jesus, that comes to Jesus as this woman did, and Jairus, and did not really, does not really, real belief, sorry, real belief is stripped of the barriers of respectability and of shame. Real belief is trust, is faith, and is love. Recognize the barrier in your life. What is stopping you falling at Jesus' feet? Is it respectability? Is it perceived shame in your life? Come to him now with the real you. The you that you maybe don't want other people to see. The you even you don't want to see. Come to him who knows you completely and still loves you. Come that you may be made clean. Amen.